Patrick Bamford bounced around for a long time, the sodium glow of his youthful promise fading in the shadows of all those blind alleys. A few months at Crystal Palace, when he did not start a game, and a spell at Norwich City, where he failed to convince his manager he was worth keeping. Burnley was a dead end, too. It was not until he arrived at Middlesbrough that he finally managed to make a Premier League start and score a Premier League goal, but it was only one. And the season ended in relegation, anyway. This was not what had been expected of Bamford. It was not, most likely, what he would have expected of himself. He had joined Chelsea at 18 and was rich enough in potential then that one of the biggest clubs in the world had paid a couple of million dollars or so to sign him after only two senior appearances. Or, at least, that was the assumption. In 2012, when a club signed a teenage prospect, the natural conclusion was that it must have found a sensation, a next big thing waiting to take the game by storm. It would not have occurred to anyone, then, that a club might sign a young player so it could harvest loan fees for a few years and then sell him at a vast profit. Looking back, of course, that is precisely what happened to Bamford at Chelsea. It was not that he wasn't supposed to make it, it was that doing so would have been a bonus. The club was, effectively, running an industrial-scale player trading operation, developing young players so they could be sold on, with the subsequent revenues reinvested into the first team. There is nothing wrong with that, nothing, at least, in a legal sense, moral reactions may vary, but it came at a cost to Bamford. He has always been judged by the standards of the player it was assumed he was meant to be. Every loan spell that did not quite work out provided a little more evidence that he had not lived up to his early talent. The year after Middlesbrough's relegation the 2017-18 season, Bamford moved to the club permanently. He had, it seemed, finally accepted that his dream of playing for Chelsea was at an end. He did well in that campaign, scoring 11 goals, but in a way that success seemed to cement his reputation. Bamford was a perfectly good striker in the second-tier championship. Not prolific, not dead-eyed and ruthless, but energetic and willing and intelligent. He had, most decided, found his level. Two seasons later, Bamford is a Premier League player. More than that, he is a Premier League standard player. He scored one of Leeds United's three goals at Anfield on the opening weekend of the season. He scored another in a 4-3 win over Fulham a week later. Then he scored a decisive goal in an impressive victory at Sheffield United. Not long after, he scored all three in a 3-0 win against Aston Villa. He has played seven games and scored six times. Those goals have been of all shapes and sizes. Pretty finishes and scruffy ones, artful ones and emphatic ones, from close range and from distance. A player written off as destined for life to be a second-tier workhorse, has arrived in what is regarded widely and occasionally even accurately, as the best domestic league in the world, and has been transformed into Ruud van Nistelrooy. The explanation for that is, in part, specific to Bamford. It is only now, as his father, Russell, recently said, that he is working for a coach Marcelo Bielsa who believes in him. It is only now that he is with a club invested in his success. For all the due diligence Chelsea and its peers among the superpowers do when finding client clubs to take their players on loan, the athletes are rarely anything more than borrowed assets. Players on loan are easily discarded. And Bamford, 27, is, perhaps, at an age when he is more centered, more comfortable, more at ease. Bamford, semi-famously, had a privileged upbringing. He went to private school. He plays the violin. He speaks three languages conversationally which in his case is probably not a resume-boosting euphemism for knowing how to ask where the swimming pool is. In his early years, that made Bamford an outlier in a sport where difference is too often seen as weakness. At times, he has admitted previously, it was a source of discomfort for him. Now he is old enough and wise enough to shrug it off. He is working for a manager who will not even be aware of his background, much less care about it. If you put all of that aside, though, there is a universal lesson in Bamford's story, something that almost affords it the status of parable.
Bamford is flourishing under Bielsa partly because of the connection between the two of them, but largely because he fits the coach's system perfectly. Bielsa does not need a striker just to score goals, that is not the sole metric by which he judges the effectiveness of his number nine. Instead, the forward in Bielsa's vision of football is there to hold the ball up, to bring others into play, to create space, to destabilize the defense and, in particular, to lead the press. Goals are helpful, of course, goals are the point of football, but they are not the only metric. It is the same reason Jurgen Klopp finds it odd that Roberto Firmino attracts criticism for not being more prolific, it is why Rafael Benitez, a generation earlier, built a title-winning team with Mistaz at spearhead, a player who scored 48 goals in 218 games across a decade in La Liga. Bielsa sees Bamford in precisely the same light. Too often, as fans and as observers, we write off players when they fail to meet some indistinct performance standard. We determine that they are not good enough for this team or that level. We demand that they are dropped or sold or upgraded. We decide that they will never make it. Bamford offers a salutary reminder that it is not quite so straightforward as decreeing some players good enough and others not good enough, and that doing so based on one element of their job in this case, goals scored is misleading to the point of myopia. Often, it is not so much that there are bad players. There are just players on the wrong team, or in the wrong system, or in a job that they are ill-suited to do. For a long time, that was Bamford. A player who was supposed to be a sensation, but never quite managed to settle. That does not mean the early promise was wrong. He was, instead, waiting to find the right place, the right time, the right team, the right coach. In Bielsa, and in Leeds, he has found that now. His story is not one of a player finally reaching his level. It is a much more common story. That of a player finding his place. England went back into lockdown. This one is set to last a month, initially, but longer feels likely. In July, the government on suspiciously short notice, cancelled Eid al-Fitr for those living in some of Britain's largest Muslim communities, so there really shouldn't be any reason to place a firewall around Christmas. There are tighter pandemic restrictions in place across Europe now, too. Nine cities subject to curfews in France, partial shutdowns in Germany and the Netherlands, limits on opening hours for restaurants and bars in Italy. The continent is in the grip of the second wave of the coronavirus, and most are warning that, without stringent measures, it may rise higher than the first. The lead football, you will have noticed, is carrying on regardless, even at a time when youth sports are being put on hold. The domestic leagues continue uninterrupted. The Champions League group stage has reached its halfway point. At a time when borders are closing and travel is being restricted, football has an international break planned. None of this has been met with any more loud cry. No anonymous executives have come forward, as they did in spring, to demand that the season be abandoned, to declare that it is abhorrent to play on while the death tolls mount. There have been no calls to nullify and void everything immediately. Nor should there have been, of course. Elite football has proved, over the last seven months, that it can play on in a time of pandemic. The number of positive tests among players remains low, the testing regimen is thorough and assiduous. Most important, the sport has not been linked to any major outbreaks, and it has not placed any excessive burden on health or emergency services. But it does raise two questions. One is why those who wanted to abandon football in spring on moral grounds, are not calling for the same to happen now. The other is, given that Europe is facing what may be a long winter of months-long lockdowns, what would have happened if football had not proved that it could play on? What if we had set the precedent of abandoning last season? Without seven months of evidence that football, at least among the elite, can function in these conditions, presumably we would have to abandon this season now. That could mean almost an entire year without any revenue at all for clubs and associations. It would mean a return was effectively impossible until a vaccine had not only been found, but also been widely administered. Football did not handle that conversation at all well in spring. 
it was fraught and self-interested and duplicitous and, at times, toxic. But, in hindsight, it may well have been the game's salvation. If it had not started then, it is not clear, now, whether the games really would have been able to start in any recognizable form at all. Remember to follow Golia by hitting the follow button and slapping a 5-star review on the show or tapping the love icon. Let's get to 1 million followers and tune in daily for new episodes.